Good morning. Thanks for the opportunity to um, talk about BTK inhibitors today. And I know uh, that you had some talks yesterday uh, on the CLL, SLL, and also on Waldenstrom. So I will try and um, go with the other lymphomas. So in terms of uh, my plan, I'm going to spend a few minutes on background. And then in terms of the B-cell malignancies, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma, which were not covered in yesterday's. And then diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and lymphoplasmacytic, this was covered. Uh, but again, if some of you weren't here yesterday, just a couple of slides on that. Then I am not going to cover mantle cell uh, because Peter Martin will be talking about that later this afternoon. And then SLL, CLL was covered extensively yesterday by Dr. Bird. Um, and then I put an asterisk next to the uh, approved indications for ibrutinib and all of the other uh, in, are not approved indications. So in terms of the mechanism, um, I know you guys know this slide, but I think I uh, just want to remind folks that the BTK inhibitors uh, are thought to act by blocking the, the downstream B-cell receptor signaling pathways and preventing B-cell proliferation specifically blocking BTK. And then I think it's also important to know that um, with ibrutinib at least, that it also interacts with other kinases besides BTK, including TEC, EGFR, ITK, and JAK2, which may account for some of the toxicities. So just wanted to put one slide up about the common side effect profile because this will uh, apply to all of the lymphomas that we're going to speak about. So I would say my conclusion about the side effects is it is generally well tolerated. However, I'm sure many of you know there have been a lot of cardiovascular side effects, primarily hypertension and atrial fibrillation, which probably occurs in somewhere between 5 and 15% of patients. And they do have some prognostic models in terms of um, patients with underlying cardiovascular disease, older patients are at higher risk. Uh, there is a significant increased risk of bruising and a small but significant risk of serious bleeding, uh, so need to use a lot of caution with the anticoagulation. And then neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. And interestingly, I think if you follow patients for quite a while, you start seeing this uh, more commonly as they are on the therapy longer. And then something that we run into a lot of trouble with in terms of quality of life um, are fairly frequent myalgias and arthralgias, which tend to be transient and migratory, uh, sometimes lower extremity edema. Although diarrhea is in the um, packaged insert is one of the most common side effects, I must say, in my experience, that that's pretty uncommon. And then the, the risk of serious infections is low, uh, but it is there and should be remembered, both invasive bacterial and fungal infections, specifically invasive aspergillosis. And most of these cases have been reported in combination studies, but not all. Um, and it sort of all started with this very high rate of aspergillosis and CNS lymphoma study that was, again, uh, multi-drug uh, multi regimen. And the aspergillosis occurs usually very early, usually within the first three months, but almost always within the first six months. So in terms of trying to address some of the toxicities, um, there are, there's a lot of work on trying to develop more selective irreversible BTK inhibitors. And I just put three of them on the slide here. I bolded acalabrutinib because that's the only other approved uh, 
BTK inhibitor, and that's approved for relapse mantle cell lymphoma. And then there are more besides these three that are sort of in earlier development. And the hope with the more selective BTK inhibitors is that it will have a more favorable toxicity profile. So if there's less inhibition of EGFR, less diarrhea, less rash, decreased inhibition of ITK, which is a critical modulator of NK cell function, perhaps would be uh, resulting in less infection, decreased inhibition of TEC kinase, which is expressed on platelets, so maybe less, and is required for platelet aggregation, so perhaps less bleeding. It's also expressed on heart tissue, so hopefully lower risk of atrial fibrillation which has actually been seen with all three of these agents, uh, very low risk of AFib, and also perhaps a decreased effect on the immunoglobulin levels, which you do see with ibrutinib, but has not been seen uh, with the more selective BTK inhibitors. In terms of the common side effects of the more selective inhibitors, it's a little bit different toxicity profile than with ibrutinib, and I specifically just put the most common side effects with acalabrutinib. So headache, which we don't really see with ibrutinib, occurs in almost half of patients, somewhere between 40 and 50 percent, occurs early and usually resolves. So um, unless it's very severe, is usually not a reason to discontinue treatment. Um, interestingly, weight gain and then uh, really have not seen AFib and very low incidence of grade three or four bleeding. So the trial that we really need to see, which will be very helpful, is the phase three trial that's still pending. It completed accrual, I think, a couple of years ago now. Uh, of acalabrutinib versus ibrutinib as frontline treatment in CLL. So it will be key to see the, uh, not only the difference in toxicity profile, but also to confirm that they are at least equally efficacious. So we're going to start with the response rates of BTK inhibitors in relapse and, rela and refractory follicular lymphoma. So there's been two phase two studies of ibrutinib. Uh, one was a multicenter uh, phase two consortium study. And the overall response rate in 40 patients was 37% with a CR rate of 12%. And to be eligible for this, you only have had to have failed one prior line of therapy. So we did have patients on this study who were rituximab sensitive, and they had a higher response rate of about 53% versus 17% in the rituximab refractory patients. There was also a multicenter study that was run by uh, pharmacyclics called the DAWN study, which included 110 patients. And to be eligible for this study, you had to have be refractory to both uh, alkylators and rituximab, meaning have failed uh, both of those lines of therapy within three month, uh, six months. And the overall response rate really quite low, 20%, uh, but very similar to the rituximab refractory in the, in the P2C study, and a CR rate of 10%. So there's your 20.9%, actually. And um, then there was also a, a multicenter study of Zenubritin, Zanubrutinib, uh, one of the more selective uh, BTK inhibitors, included only 17 patients with follicular lymphoma, 41% response rate, and these patients did not have to be refractory. So I think pretty consistent uh, over those three studies. And then here's the PFS and overall survival curve for the phase two consortium study. So um, unfortunately, as opposed to the CLL studies where you see the ibrutinib PFS curve uh, dropping extremely slowly, this one drops pretty quickly with a median PFS of 14 months and a two-year PFS of 20%. Uh, so again, really, even in the responders, not much durability there. 
and the Dawn study the same way. So here's the PFS curve with a 30-month PFS of 11%, and again, these were the refractory patients. So one thing that we did do in the P2C study was we had 31 patients who had uh, new biopsies at the time of study entry and did um, whole, uh, whole exome sequencing on these patients and interestingly found something that had been reported previously in a small set of DLBCL patients, which that patients who had a CARD11 mutation had a much worse PFS and in fact there were zero of five responders in the CARD11 mutated group as opposed to the CARD11 wild type, where 50% of patients responded. There were also additional mutations which did predict for improved PFS. So then what about ibrutinib and relapsed and refractory marginal zone lymphoma? So there's only been one published study using ibrutinib and marginal zone lymphoma and had 60 patients in it, but was actually a registration trial for ibrutinib uh, in this indication and is actually an FDA-approved indication. So the overall response rate was 48% in all comers with a median progression-free survival of 14 months. And interestingly, if you look at the details of the uh, paper that... um, which I had not done very carefully until last night, so uh, that the, um, the majority of patients actually had extranodal marginal zone lymphoma. Some of them had both nodal and extranodal, but, but at least half of them had at least a site of extranodal marginal zone lymphoma. Um, 14 patients had um, splenic marginal zone lymphoma, and only 17 patients had nodal marginal zone lymphoma. And if you look at the response rates, pretty similar, although the nodal marginal zone lymphoma had the lowest response rate and also had the shortest median duration of response. And so um, I think that's actually where most of us are using ibrutinib. So it's, it's important to remember that when you're talking to the patients and, and treating them with this, that the expectation is about a 40% response rate with less than a 12-month uh, PFS for those patients. And then how about ibrutinib and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Um, I think Dr. Yunus might be talking a little bit about this later this afternoon as well. So um, this is a study from Wyndham Wilson. It's actually a multi-center study of ibrutinib and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma that initiated out of the NCI. 80 patients with a 25% overall response rate, but this... um, unexpected, or actually expected finding, if you think about the mechanism, uh, that had a much better response rate in the ABC subtype than in the GCB, so only one of 20 GCB patients responded as opposed to um, 37% of the ABC patients with a 16% CR rate. But you can see from this PFS curve that... um, It is not very durable, so the blue curve is the ABC subtype, and that you can see by a year, almost all the patients had relapsed. And then um, this group also did uh, whole exome sequencing and had some pretty interesting findings in terms of subsets of patients who respond within the ABC subtype. So four of five patients who had both a CD79B mutation and an MYD88 mutation Uh, responded. So again, this is a small subset of patients, um, but I think just uh, speaks to the point that we we may be able to figure out the patients uh, who would respond. And then this is one of the more selective 
BTK inhibitors, and this again was a study that had several subtypes of lymphoma in it, but I just put it up because it also had 35 DLBCL patients who had relapsed and refractory DLBCL and had a PFS curve that looked very similar to Dr. Wilson's curve with ibrutinib. So then this was uh, just recently published in blood uh, by the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group, which was a phase one study of rice plus ibrutinib in relapsed and refractory DLBCL, had only 21 patients, 20 of whom were available for response, and they actually escalated the dose of ibrutinib up to 840 milligrams a day and did not have any DLTs. The overall response rate was 90% with a CR rate of 55%. And in the non-GCB subtype, it was 100%. And I think this was determined by the Hans criteria. And I did forget to mention that in Dr. Wilson's study that the ABC was actually determined um, by gene expression profiling. And these, there will be a phase two study that will be activated soon of this combination. Um, I think maybe just a handful of institutions will be participating in relatively small, I think, 50 patients. But it does look encouraging, uh, especially in these non-GCB patients with a very high CR rate. And then this phase three study of RCHOP plus ibrutinib versus RCHOP in untreated non-GCB. So based on Dr. Wilson's preliminary uh, results showing a high response rate in the non-GCB. They did a very large international trial comparing RCHOP to ibrutinib plus RCHOP, specifically in non-GCB that was determined by the Hans criteria, and it was over 800 patients and had a recent press release. We have not seen the results of the study, but the press release said that the phase three trial did not meet the primary endpoint of EFS in the patients with non-GCB DLBCL, but had a caveat saying that clinically meaningful improvements were observed in a patient subpopulation. And so I guess we'll just have to wait and see those results uh, in terms of whether there may be a subset of patients who respond. So a little bit disappointing. I think this is where we keep finding ourselves with upfront DLBCL uh, is adding drug X to our CHOP. And uh, unfortunately, this is just one of a series that have not shown uh, a benefit there. So I think, again, we probably need a better way to find the patients who would benefit from ibrutinib. Just taking the Hans criteria, uh, non-GCB did not do the trick. And then I didn't put a slide on here, but would just uh, mention the current alliance uh, intergroup study of ibrutinib uh, in patients who have relapsed DLBCL that are undergoing a stem cell transplant. So they actually get ibrutinib as part of the preparative regimen and then get ibrutinib maintenance after the transplant. So if any of you, any of you have that trial open, uh, we'd be very enthusiastic about additional accruals. And so then how about Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia? So again, I think there was a, a specific talk on this yesterday uh, in the CLL session, uh, but just for those of you who are not here, um, the overall response rate to ibrutinib in this study of relapse refractory lymphoplasmocytic lymphoma was 100% with a major response rate of 91%. Um, lower response rate in patients who have a CXCR4 mutation. And in terms of durability, um, I'm not sure they gave a two-year PFS in the paper, but if you look at it there, it looks like it's about 70%. And then this was just recently published for Waldenstrom's, which is ibrutinib and rituximab in frontline and relapsed and refractory Waldenstrom's. So it was a study that included about 
half of the patients who had frontline who had never been treated before and half of the patients had relapsed or refractory Waldenstrom's and it was comparing ibrutinib and rituximab to placebo plus rituximab so basically single agent rituximab versus ibrutinib rituximab and I think not shockingly uh, the ibrutinib rituximab was better so I think um, the study that we probably need to see uh, is ibrutinib alone versus ibrutinib rituximab because that combination has also been studied in CLL. And at least in CLL, it does not appear that there's a benefit to giving rituximab in combination with ibrutinib. And so that may be the same thing in Waldenstrom. So I worry a little bit about the increased risk of infection when you're giving both of those drugs together. So again, before I jumped on this bandwagon, um, I would like to see whether adding rituximab to single-agent ibrutinib really improves the uh, response rates or PFS. And then I also think that it would be important to compare uh, this combination, or ibrutinib alone, to BR, again, because of this fixed duration of therapy, that the results with BR and lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma look very good in terms of durability. So in terms of conclusions that for BTK inhibitors and B-cell lymphoma, um, in terms of the opportunities, I think, as we've talked about, it has a unique mechanism of action. I didn't go too much into the combination studies, of which there are many, many many of them in CLL, but it does look like it, it, for the most part, plays well with other combinations, so it can be added to rice, can be added to our chop. There's a study with our DAP is being combined in mantle cell and CLL with the Netoclax. So I think that may be uh, where we're going to be going with this is, is combinations potentially. And I think what we really need to do with the combinations is see if there's a way that we can make this a fixed duration therapy, meaning that doesn't go on forever, uh, which would be great for the patient uh, for many reasons. And then I think, uh, again, lots of opportunities, opportunities potentially with these more selective inhibitors, and it'll be interesting to see the results of the phase three study in CLL. And that I would say, you know, again, very well tolerated overall. In terms of the challenges, um, I would say the number one challenge is probably cost, uh, which for even approved indications is sometimes difficult for patients that they uh, get the drug approved and then find out they have a $5,000 copay per month for several months before that kind of goes off. So um, again, I think that has been an issue, even in approved indications. And I think this indefinite treatment is also an issue, not only from a cost perspective, but also some of these side effects that tend to, to be worse as you're on the drug for a longer period of time. Uh, and then acquired resistance is obviously a challenge, and then the, the sort of unique toxicities of AFib and bleeding, which may be addressed with the more selective BTK inhibitors. And then I think what we really need for the lymphomas that we talked about briefly that are less responsive than CLL, SLL, and mantle cell lymphoma would be predictive markers for these less responsive lymphomas. So if we can figure out uh, which patients with follicular lymphoma would respond. It would be uh, a useful drug, but when, when you know that the response rate is going to be 20 to 40 percent, uh, if you take all comers, then, then less interesting. Very good. Thanks.